All right, welcome everybody. It is our upper room. And if you remember our upper room, like we said, the kids stay in and they take part in communion. Um, but I want to introduce, I guess technically it's his first time speaking with us. Because last time it, we had Simeon with us. So this is the first time, I guess, Bill Smith is speaking uh, with us this morning. So Good point. we want to welcome, as Bill's us. You don't have to pay me, Bill. No, 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 you're, no. You're already I, on the list. Well, yeah, you, don't yeah, have to, you don't have to pay me or anything. For, for, for it's, you're, me, yeah. you're already preaching. So uh, well, this is Bill's kind of first opportunity, I guess, for the message here uh, with us at I Faith. I got to buy off the audience, I guess, here yes. at least. Or, well, yeah, he's buying off the audience the there. Uh, so the way this is going to work this morning for Kids Church, and if you can help me out with this yes. a little bit. Yeah, kids, if you want to start making your way uh, up This here. is your chance, kids, to earn $5. All right, so we're talking something serious here, so we want you to come on down. Line up here. I think Line I'm actually going to stay on That's stage. That's what I'm counting the money for, this chance to earn $5 oh, for yeah, the kids. Only the kids. Yeah, Only the kids. Only the kids. Tell them I'll match it $5. Yeah. All right, so I, we're, we're talking serious money here. I got, I, got, boy, I got some older kids on this one. This is good. All right, all right. So here's, here's how I'm going to let you earn your $5. Okay, all right, I'm going to pick you out. Um, I'm going to only pick a couple of you to start, okay? So what I need is those who can, who, can do, who knows how to do jumping jacks? All right, kind of, all right. Well, we got it, we need to, uh, okay, so if you think you're ready to do some jump, jumping jacks, uh, let's see, again, you're going to own $5 for this. You got to do them for three minutes. You think we're up for this? Jumping jacks for three minutes? I see a few, a few buyers. Okay, all right, so... Let's see. Let a couple of the older. Can you help me out here a little bit? Come on up and. All right. I promise I'll pay you when we're done. Okay. You think you can do it? Let's bring you up. We need a couple smaller. Okay. You're a little smaller. Bring you up here. And then let's see. Can we bring you up too? Come on. You know you don't want to do the jumping jacks? Okay. This is our five dollars. All right. Now I'm going to hit the timer. When I start the timer, then you guys start doing the jumping jacks. We'll do it for three minutes. There's a timer up over there. Okay. All right. Let me get this started. All right, on your mark, get set, go. Oops, got to get the start thing to go. Here we got it. Okay, all right. Jumping jacks for three minutes. We're five seconds into it. We're going to keep going. We'll make it, make it. Yeah, okay, let's keep going here. All right, keep going. Keep going. All right, we almost got down to 30 seconds here. All right, now, I need somebody else who wants to do it for two minutes. All right, there's one, there's one, okay, there's one. All right, join them. Do it for two minutes. Let's keep going. You, you three, start working with them. Jump with them. Do jumping jacks. Here we go. Okay, we're going to do it for two minutes. We're going to do a little less than two minutes. All right, here we go. Okay, all right. We got about 20 seconds in it. All right, who wants to do it for the remainder of the minute? You guys, come on up. Join and do it for the remainder of the minute. You all get $5. Come on up. Come on, keep going. Keep going. All right, we got about 10 seconds left. Go for it. Go for it. Nine, six, five, four, three, two, one, stop. Okay, now I promised that I would give each of you $5, right? Okay, so there's five. There's five. Okay, here we got. There's five. There's five. For you little ones, take it back to your mom and dad. Okay, there's $5. Like I promised, there's five. Okay, we'll give you five, too. All right, there's five, there's five, and there's five, and we're done. 
You what? You got cramps? Oh, God. Okay. Good enough. Five seconds in, you got a cramp. Oh, but now, who, who you guys, you guys, who did it the longest? Raise your hand. I don't know. Who did it for the full time? Raise your hand. Okay, we had a couple of you doing it for the full time, right? Yeah, I did it for only a minute. You're okay. You only did it for a few seconds. That's right. All right, so you can all go back to your parents. I'm going to hang on to the remaining of five dollars. All adults want to come up and do this later. I've still got a few fives left, so we'll see how we can do. All right, now there's a method to the madness here, and I promise I will get to it in a minute. But what I'd like to do here, if I get my mouse back, is I'd like to open us in prayer at this point, if I may. Thank you for the fun of playing with the kids and uh, for an illustration for what we're going to be talking about in today's parable. Thank you for your love. We covet you to be here with us here this morning. You've already welcomed us so much with the music and with the the fellowship and so many other things at Faith Fellowship Church. And we stand in awe of the honor of having your spirit with us. I do pray that that as I get the chance to talk this morning, that you would anoint these words, that your Holy Spirit would work through my mouth and through all of our hearts, that we might love you, glorify you, and grow closer to you. In the name of your Son, Jesus, the Christ, we pray. Amen. All right. Let's see if I can get this going here, if this will work. Uh, let's do this. There we go. All right. I'm a little nervous. Uh, Simeon did it last time, so Bill's going to try and do it this time, as, as, Sean, as Seth was pointing out. Uh, Billy Graham's first sermon, as recorded in his story behind the scenes, explains that it was Easter weekend in 1937 when Billy Graham, accompanied by his college dean, Reverend John Minder, on a trip north of Tampa to Pataka, Florida, uh, went up there with him. Tommy Underwood's father, Cecil, greeted them and asked Minder if he would mind preaching the upcoming weekend at nearby Boswick Baptist Church. Minder declined, but instead he volunteered Billy Graham, much to the then 18-year-old's bewilderment. With knees knocking and four borrowed half-hour sermons to fall back on, note as an engineer, four half-hour sermons work out to two hours' worth of talk, Billy Graham delivered all four sermons sequentially, one sermon right after the other, for the 40 or so parishioners that were there at the church. Billy Graham then concluded his first ever career sermon eight minutes later. (laughs) You may be wondering if I'm as good as Billy Graham. To grossly misquote John the Baptist, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. All right, we all love a good story. We all love a good storyteller. A person who can tell a good story will never lack an audience. Approximately one-third of Jesus' teaching, as recorded in the Gospels, are in this distinctive literary form. It has been said that the shortest distance between truth and the human heart is a good story. Stephen Kendrick observed that Jesus used stories that are very relevant to our lives, taking heaven's truth and packaging it in earthly context. And finally, Brian D. McLaren observed that Jesus was short on sermons, but long on conversation. Short on answers, long on questions. 
He was short on abstraction and propositions. He was long on stories and parables. He was short on telling you what to think. He was long on challenging you to think for yourself. So let's be at least a little challenged as Jesus pushes us on one of these more difficult parables that we're going to try and think for ourselves. We're looking at the parable of the workers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. You're certainly welcome to follow along. It's also up on the screen. It begins like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, about the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in the vineyard, and I will pay whatever's right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and then about the ninth hour and did the same thing. At the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because nobody has hired us, they answered. The landowner said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired in the eleventh hour came and each received a full denarius. So when those who were hired first came, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour. Oops, I should be going through this. I'm sorry. Ha! That's my big, first big mistake of the day. <clears throat> when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal with us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But the landowner answered them, one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the, I want, if I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you, that's my business. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And so the last will be first, and the first will be last. So let's try and unpack this parable just a little bit. All right, so here's what we're going to go through. I guess I'm trying to be, can you tell I'm an engineer? I've got things all outlined and ready to go. So we did the parable notes. We're going to talk about the parable notes next. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit about the landowner. First, there's the landowner. He's a person in authority. He had money to hire workers and a steward to pay them. He started at dawn himself. The first hour, as measured in Hebrew thought, was 6 a.m. That's a pretty early start to the day. He needed workers urgently. His harvest would be ruined if not brought in as quickly as possible once it was time to harvest. Note that Note what looks to be his surprise when he sees that there are others still standing around that are not working. He has plenty of work, and he needs these workers desperately. So secondly, let's turn to the, to the workers. And a denarius, which is a typical daily wage. With Latin den, D-E or D-E-N, indicates ten. 
A denarius is therefore ten areases. The image um, on, on the denarius in Jesus' day has the head of Tiberius Caesar on the front and either his mother, Livia, or the goddess of peace, Pax, on the back. Note the relative size of the denarius in the fingers in the photograph. In Maryland, the minimum wage is $12.50 an hour. If you work an eight-hour day, you're going to make $100. That works out to about $26,000 a year. If the denarius is 10 areas then, then each areas is about 10 bucks, given the minimum wage of today. Note, however, that no other group of workers is offered the standard wage. While the first group was offered a specific amount, a denarius, all the later groups were told that they would be paid whatever is right. Because we don't typically use the Hebrew standard of timekeeping, and it was kind of finds it different in some Bibles, uh, <clears throat> let me help unpack some of the times that they were hired. The first hour typically started at 6 a.m., as, as mentioned earlier. That then sets the following times. The third hour is 9 a.m., the sixth hour is noon, the ninth hour is 3 p.m., and the eleventh hour, you guys always heard about the eleventh hour, it's a happy hour, I suppose, right? 5 p.m. in the afternoon, 5 p.m. in the evening. And there's, there's a, I remember seeing a, in a bar down in Florida one time, it says, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. All right, there you go. The, their day then ended at 6 p.m. They had a 12-hour workday, which was more typical back then. As I tease some of my students at uh, UMBC, in my day, we walked uphill to school both ways in snow that was waist-deep in the middle of July. We ate dirt, and we were glad to get that. These youngsters today, boy, I mean, anyway, I can tell more about that. William Barclay's commentary on the parable pointed out that uh, at a minimum wage, at on minimum wage, a worker back then uh, would, and, and perhaps even more importantly, his family would go hungry if they were paid less than a denarius for the day's work. Perhaps paying even the late workers with a full denarius shows the deep kindness of the landowner's heart. Third, then, let's progress on to the payment process, bullet three up there. As is typical for day laborers, they were usually paid at the end of each day. They're not salaried, nor are they paid in arrears. Leviticus even codifies this standard in chapter 19, verse 13. It says, do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Note that the landowner specifically gave order, orders to pay the last workers first. This is not the typical order of doing things as noted by them and most of us. And in case you work it, missed it, even the workers themselves are, may, are acutely aware of that. A key question to ask here is, why does the steward ask that those who work last get paid first and work his way backwards? I'm not 100% sure I know exactly why, but it could be because either the owner or Jesus in his parable, is planning to make a key insight as part of the payment along with the denarius. Jesus is working to make an incredible insight on this point. We'll try and unpack that as we go on. The obvious issue here is made very dramatically. The men who were hired last earned the full day's $100 for just one hour's work. 
Now, when the last guys watch the very, when the first guys watch the very last hired guys get paid a full denarius for one hour's work, you can imagine what they're thinking. Dollar signs in the eyes. Boy, they're doing the math. They're probably thinking, for those who are doing the math, they're thinking, wow, they got $100 for one hour's work. Woo! If I multiply that by that 12 hours, I'm going to get paid 1200 bucks for just one day's work. That's $6,000 a week, and as an engineer, I'm doing, obsessed with math. That's going to be $300,000 in a year. They want to stick with this guy and stick with him like, uh, as much as they can. Boy, they are looking for what they're going to do. And so they've already got the dollar signs in their eyes. They're pretty sure they're going to get paid this wonderful amount. Uh, and then they wind up getting up in front. And it was kind of interesting. I, you sort of heard it a little bit from the kids up here. By the way, in case you noticed, I did pretty much exactly the same thing with them, except they were doing jumping jacks instead of working in the vineyard, and I didn't make them work all day. I only had them work for about 20 seconds, it turned out. All right? But you can understand that the kids, a couple of them were saying, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> How come I had to do jumping jacks the whole time and you're giving me the same amount that you are the other kids? All right, so they, even they were kind of picking up on that. Um, and then quoting out of scripture, it says, those other guys who were hired last worked for just one hour and you made them equal to us. We had to work through the entire heat of the day and you only gave us a crummy denarius. That's not fair. I mean, any of us is going to think the same thing, I suppose, right? There's nothing, no part of this that's going to be all that far off or that far unusual. It's interesting to me and always fascinating how the parables of Jesus can transcend time and culture in that particular way. We're all resonating just a little bit with those guys who had to work all day, all right? So let me try and one other little sequence as we're going through this. Uh, and I learned this back when I remember when I was uh, first a new Christian. Somebody said, all right, let's say you got your kids and you tell them, we're all going to go out for ice cream tonight. Kids all go, yay, that sounds great, okay? But let's change the scenario here just a little bit. Let's say you're with your kids and you're saying, we're going to go down to Disney World for a week, okay? The kids are, wow, that's fantastic. But unfortunately, something comes up and you say, you know, I'm sorry, kids, I can't take you down to Disneyland. Instead, we're going to go out for ice cream. And all of a sudden, it's kind of like, ugh. You know, they were looking forward to Disney World, and they got ice cream instead. Okay? Now, in both cases, you're still talking about taking the kids out for ice cream. But in the second one, ice cream doesn't look nearly as good as it did in the first scenario. But it's still the same thing. Kind of not much different from where the workers in the vineyard are standing, right? They were willing to work for a denarius. That was a good, fair wage for a good day's pay. Okay? And they needed the money, and the, worker, and the landlord owner needed the workers. Okay, But when it was put in context of, golly, these guys only had to work one hour and they got paid a whole denarius, all of a sudden it looks significantly different. Note, however, the key fact that the landowner paid everyone exactly what he had promised. He was, in fact, being precisely fair, at least in a sense. Fourth and finally, let me help unpack Jesus' explanation that maybe even take us a tad further. First, let, let us look at the landowner's complaint, complaint, at the worker's complaint. We said, of course, nobody can disagree with them in there. In this particular situation, it seems grossly unfair to get paid essentially less than someone who's worked 
for much less time. And it's even one more blow to the pride when they work the hardest and the first and the longest and they got paid last in line. Don't miss this, though. The landowner was available to answer their questions. He answered them kindly. He calls them friend. But he remained firm in his decision on what to pay them. In spite of all this, note the fundamental technical fairness of it all. First, each worker was told what the pay would be, and they agreed to it, at least the first group. Even if the later workers were paid more, actually note they were paid the same technically, they still received a very, very fair wage. If the landowner wanted to be generous, that's his business. How does that mean he owed others anything more? The bottom line is, it was only their jealousy that made the denarius no longer seem to be a fair wage. Recall the Disney World illustration. Having unpacked the parable, let me now look just a little bit at the context that Jesus used to tell the parable here in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is a Jewish Levite. The Hebrew mindset more often follows the context rather than sequentially, okay, rather than chronologically. While chronology is followed, it is not quite as strict a sequence as in Western thought. Matthew frequently organizes his gospel more according to similarity than chronology. So let's look a little bit at the context that this parable sits in. There's a couple events that happen before it and a couple that come afterwards. Back in Matthew 19, 13 to 15, Matthew places the well-known passage about having the little children come to Jesus. Note how well this fits with the concept that Jesus finishes his parable with. The last, the little children, are brought up to the front of the, in, of the crowd of adults and given first access to Jesus. The last shall be first. And the adults are pushed back just a tad so that they're, uh, just a tad <clears throat> so that their elders, the first, are pushed back in the crowd to become last. The little children are brought from the last to the first. The adults step back from the first to the last. After that event in Matthew, it is an event that actually Jesus uses precisely to set the context for the parable we've been looking at. It's the story about the rich, rich young ruler. I don't know about you, but that always scares me at least just a little bit. You may recall the scene. A rich man comes up to Jesus. Let's go here. A rich man comes up to Jesus and asks what he needs to do to receive eternal life. Jesus replies by listing the last six of the Ten Commandments. But note something a little bit interesting. When Jesus begins to list the last six of the Ten Commandments, you'd think he could get them all right and in order. I'm not sure that I can, but he can. Okay, I've got it written down here, so I've got a pretty good order here going. But he starts with the Sixth Commandment of the last six. That means he's already skipped one. Don't murder. And then he says the seventh, don't commit adultery. And then he says the eighth, don't steal. He says the ninth, don't lie. He then circles back to the fifth and says, honor your father and your mother. And he changes the final one to love your neighbor as yourself. Note two key things about this change to the last commandment. First, it is given with a positive rather than a negative, the original text, and I'm hanging off to tell you what the Tenth Commandment is in a minute for those of you who are trying to remember, as I probably would be. 
Second note, that the, the, the phrase that Jesus gives, love your neighbor as yourself, to the rich young ruler, is set up to be the most, second most important commandment on the planet. And again, I'll talk just a little bit more about that here later in the text. Continuing with the story, though, the young man then presses, presses Jesus further. The rich young ruler claims to have done all of these things since his youth. Jesus then says a very interesting thing. If you would be perfect, he says, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never met a perfect person, nor do I have any designs on being one. I know for a fact that the best I can do is be forgiven. That being said, while I will follow Jesus, I'll take a bit of a pass on selling everything that I own to become perfect. Jesus tells them, then the disciples are kind of mulling over all of this, and they're saying, golly, uh, they say, who can possibly get into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus explains that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, for those theologians, the camel going through the eye of a needle is, is, is really a low, small door or something that's tough for the, That may be it. It may be Jesus is specifically saying this is absolutely impossible. And if you have any questions about it, the fact is that the apostles look at Jesus, the 12 disciples, the 12, look at Jesus and say, how can anybody be saved? So it could even be just the eye of a needle and trying to get a camel through that little teeny opening, right? All that being said, we are told that with God, that it's what's impossible for man, with God, anything is possible. And Jesus will one day make the impossible possible precisely by dying on the cross and getting us through that eye of a needle and into heaven. Peter then comes back with an interesting observation here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 27. He tells Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Note this conclusion that Jesus tells Peter from our parable is the same as follows. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Commentators point out three key possible applications of Jesus' conclusion. First, there will be a reward, the thrones in heaven. Second, God's rewards are not the normal way of man. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And finally, third and finally, God's ways of rewards are different, but precisely fair, which has led us to our parable today when we first started, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. We've already unpacked the parable quite a bit at this point. Let's go on to the rest of the context. In Matthew 20, 17 to 19, following the parable, Jesus reveals to the disciples that he will be betrayed and crucified. This is the infinite first becoming last. God, Jesus, God's Son himself, will be made the ultimate last 
dying for the sins of the entire planet, even though he is the firstborn among all of creation. And then the final element of Matthew's context comes when the mother of James and John asked for her sons to sit next to Jesus in Matthew 20, 20 through 28. She's asking for quite a lot. She's asking for her two boys, John and James, to wind up sitting on either side of Jesus in what she sees as a very earthly kingdom, but even isn't necessarily entirely sure what she's asking for or doesn't, certainly doesn't realize the impact and the amount that she's asking for her. You might wonder if James and John's are maybe a little embarrassed about their mom, perhaps going up, you know, Mom, cool it. <laughs> we got this covered. <clears throat> if in either event, whatever James and John are thinking, we are told what the other ten think. They think that's really outrageous. And they are massively indignant. In fact, they're probably looking just a little bit like those workers in the vineyard when... <clears throat> Uh, James and John's mom goes up and tries to put her son up in front and push the others back to the back. So now we've come to looking for a nugget for a central truth in Jesus' parable. Jesus gives us a key even here. The first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus interprets his own parable for us, but it still kind of leaves us a little bit. Let's unpack this a little bit even more. <clears throat> Let's offer some further interpretations for the parable. Some commentators... <clears throat> suggest that this applies to those who will receive Jesus late in life, while others might receive Jesus early in their life. Those who work all of their lives serving Jesus and come to the end probably feel like they work through the heat of the day, whereas those who receive Jesus on their deathbed get an equal share in the kingdom of heaven, or at least a, they certainly get the chance to get into the kingdom of heaven. They get the denarius, as it were. Other commentators have pointed out the historical point. God's word came first to the Jews, and then only later did it come to the Gentiles through Jesus. The Jews had to work at being God's chosen people for 4,000 for four millennia now, while the Gentiles have only been working for the last 2,000 years or so, just for two millennia. Several folks suggest that the last will be first, and the first will be last, no matter how you interpret the details, points out God's infinite grace. He gives his grace to all of us, no matter how hard we work or how little we work or how long we work or how short a time we've had to work with him. Note that the landlord did not treat anyone unfairly. Jesus, our Father, Jesus and our Father, they are infinitely just. It's just that the landowner was more generous to some than to others. <clears throat> he is also infinitely merciful. So let me say that one more time. Note that the landowner did not treat anybody unfairly. He was infinitely just. But he did give the same amount to those who work less than those who work longer. He is infinitely merciful. Isn't the only way to be infinitely just and infinitely merciful to be found at the foot of the cross? There's one question that we struggle with in asking, how oftentimes we struggle with, I know I have, how will God judge those who have not heard the gospel? This may be answered here, perhaps in this parable. Let me offer two thoughts. First, on how God will rescue those who've never heard. Let me quote President Obama. That question is above my pay grade. <laughs> Praise God that I'm not the one to do the judging. He is. But secondly, let me also note this fine, my own personal insight. How God will judge people, those who haven't heard, I don't know. 
But I do know, in the end, that God's judgment is infinitely just, and it's infinitely merciful. So I don't have to know the answer to that question. I know that God does. And I know that when I get up there in heaven, I will be able to see exactly that. His judgment will be infinitely just and infinitely merciful. All right, we're coming back to my final, final. I've got a final, final, final here in the one. There was one observation that struck me as I was preparing the talk, and I personally think at this point that this parable illustrates the 10th commandment. All right, so let's start off with, does anybody know what the 10th commandment is? Off the top of your head, it, I can make an open Bible quiz if you like. You can look to uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. I'll give you one minute to find out what the 10th commandment is. I've been circling the drain. I haven't said it out loud, I don't think, to this point. Coveting. What? Coveting. 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 All right. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. That's exactly what we're looking for. Very, very good. Very good. And I was deliberately uh, trying to avoid naming it precisely. And uh, let me try and pull that together a little bit with this, uh, with this particular story about the, the, uh, the, the, the denarius. You could, it's sort of obviously intuitive, right? Okay. Guess what those guys who worked the last were doing? They were coveting what the, uh, those guys who worked the first were doing, they were coveting what those who worked last did. The guys who worked for 12 hours were coveting what the guys got for only one hour. They would have liked to have that same level of pay throughout the whole 12 hours. <clears throat> uh, so let me try a couple quick answers on this. Number one is, I get the chance to teach a couple nights a week at UMBC, all right? And I, get to, I also have the opportunity to grade exams. And I try very, very hard as a professor to grade them correct. Uh, I do tell the students at the beginning of every, se of every semester, I've been married for 37 years. I know I'm wrong. Okay? <clears throat> and don't, I tell them, don't tell anybody, but she's wrong much less than me, but occasionally as well. All right? <clears throat> so when I grade the exam, <clears throat> I got one student, so it's not an, it happens, hopefully I keep it way down, but every so often I don't grade something right. I make a mistake. Okay? And I had one student pointing out that he brought me his exam and he brought his neighbor's exam and he said, he got marked right on this problem. I got marked wrong. So I looked at the problem and I said, oh, you know what? You're absolutely right. He should have got it wrong too. <laughs> should I take the point away from him? And the answer was, no, that's okay. <laughs> and I don't blame him. <clears throat> Second illustration. Um, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Okay? And you guys, those, how many of you old enough to remember Kmart? Okay, so quite a few of you. All right, now see how old you really are. How many people know what the K in Kmart stands for? My bride does, but she's been living with me for a while. The K in Kmart stands for Kresge. There used to be the Kresge five and dimes. Okay, that tells you how far back it goes, right? These days it's a dollar, and even that's hard to make, right? But the Kresge five and dime. Uh, it turns out that Stan Kresge Sr., who was a personal friend of the family, in fact, his son Stan Jr. was best man at my, my parents' wedding. Stan Sr., when, he, when his parents passed away, his dad passed away uh, in the very, actually the end of the 19th century, okay, they were coming to, to share the money, and Stan actually took his dad's millions and turned it into real money, okay, that kind of sort of guy. They wound up in an argument 
because there were 12 kids in the family, and the oldest was supposed to get a double share. Stan's sister was actually the oldest. He had an older sister, and then he was second in line, and then there were the other 10 behind them. What's interesting is, is that Stan's sister insisted that since Stan was the oldest boy, he should get the double share. And Stan insisted that since his sister was actually the oldest, she should get the double share. And that was the only fight they had over who was going to get money. They argued that the other siblings should get more than they should of the inheritance. That is a very wonderful, unusual family, by all means. Finally, let me share one other story that try, ties it, kind of trying to get this tied in a little bit closer. Um, when I graduated from college, I had a number, we were in a house, there were like seven or eight of us all together in this house. Four or five of us were seniors, and we were getting our, uh, our acceptance letters as seniors for where we're going to go off and go work. Rick wasn't doing very well. He uh, had a little, just barely above a C average. The rest of us were doing quite a bit better. Rick kept noticing that we were starting to hide him from him the letters that we were getting with our offers because we felt bad for him. He wasn't getting the same offers that we were. He came to us, <clears throat> and he said, Brothers, he said, um, I want to rejoice with you when you get an offer. Please, don't keep them from me. Now, that was somebody who was rejoicing with his neighbor who got more. And that, in my mind, is the positive to the Ten Commandments. That is, love your neighbor as yourself. All right. A couple quick last notes here. I'm hopefully not going to go too much over. In the Gospels, Jesus himself uses the phrase, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, six times. Three of them are in Matthew, two are in, Luke, in Mark, and one is in Luke. Note that it is not only Jesus who quotes that commandment. Paul quotes it twice in Romans 13 and Galatians 5, and even the book of James quotes it in chapter 2. Note that this commandment is the second and most important commandment of them all. It is second only to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Matthew's gospel, talking about context, the commandment is mentioned uh, for the third and final time only two chapters after this particular parable. So try asking yourself, can you be truly happy when your neighbor wins the lottery? And that means being happy for them, not thinking how much you might be able to mooch off of them. Maybe if you are truly happy for the windfall, then you too, indeed, are truly beginning to learn how to love your neighbor as yourself. Try asking yourself the question, how does loving Jesus help me love my neighbor as myself? And finally, this illustration in the Enduring Word Commentary by David Guzik. He's quoting the great preacher Spurgeon. I understand Bill, my namesake, often like to quote Spurgeon. He's a really good guy to quote. What does it matter, after all, whether we are first or whether we are last? When we are converted, we become members of Christ's living body. If my hand has something in it, does my foot say, I don't have that? No! For if my hand has it, my foot has it. It belongs to the whole body. Truly. Love your neighbor as yourself.